G. My name is C.S. Song. It often seems in times like these that social activism, radical activism, is not very rewarding. Chances for success of, say, a radical left proposal or program aren't very high in the prevailing political climate, and clear-cut victories can be few and far between. So then, what happens? Well, some activists get burned out, some get depressed, some may feel no small amount of despair coming on. Hopefully, your experience has been different. The point is, one's mental and emotional well-being may be significantly affected by one's activist ambitions. And by the extent to which those ambitions are or are not realized, today we'll talk about issues like these and about the ability of psychology as a discipline to address these kinds of issues with Terry Coopers. Terry is a psychiatrist in private practice in the Bay Area, as well as a faculty member at the Wright Institute in Berkeley. He's also a longtime prisoner rights activist and the author of books like *Ending Therapy*. Revisioning Men's Lives and Prison Madness. Terry joins me in our studios in Berkeley. Welcome to you. Thank you. A pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you here, Terry. I want to start with some some personal history. I know you were first attracted to psychoanalysis, to learning about how to do psychoanalysis, because of what you saw as its potential for social liberation. I'm reading here from something you wrote. What kind of potential are you referring to here? Well, an in-depth study of our own psyche, of what's going on in our heads, is a way to see through the current social reality as it's presented. For instance, consumerism, and really the way to struggle against consumerism and the way it controls our life is to understand ourselves more and more deeply, which the psychoanalytic project attempted to do. There was, in the early days of psychoanalysis, a strong revolutionary、um, a thrust among the psychoanalysts in Europe. Of course, when they came to the United States, they became more narrowly clinical. But at the time, we had people like Wilhelm Reich, we had Otto Fenichel, we had the Frankfurt School in Germany, where they were using psychoanalytic theory to analyze how capitalism was able to survive when there should have been, according to all the historical projections, there should have been revolutions in Europe. Instead, capitalism survived. How? Had a lot to do with imperialism, with consumerism, and it had to do with how the system was able to control people's minds to make them relatively happy buying things instead of turning and saying, "What's wrong with our system?" and we need to change it. So psychoanalysis then became a double-edged project. On the one hand, we could use it to analyze what's wrong with people's psychological life under capitalism. On the other hand, capitalism used it. Psychoanalysts were involved in designing consumerism and talking about how ads. Could manipulate people's minds to buy and be happy. Well, as you as you talk about these thinkers and psychoanalysts in Europe who came over to the U.S. and, as you said, might have become less political when they arrived, a lot of these people read Marx, read Karl Marx, thought about Karl Marx. It obviously influenced their critiques of capitalism.、Uh, you became a Marxist in the 1960s, and this is another important part of of your story. And the story will. Talk about today. Why did you become a Marxist then? Well, if I had to name a moment, I would say it was the civil rights movement. I had gotten active.、Um, I, I had been influenced in college by Robert McAfee Brown, who was very involved in social struggles and civil rights movements. And、um, I got involved with the farm workers, organizing and tutoring、uh, young migrant farm workers in California. Then I went south for the civil rights movement. It was at the time when SNCC was becoming very militant, and there were、uh, statements like Stokely Carmichael's、uh, "Hunky Go Home." 
And a lot of uh, radicals, white radicals, left in disgust. Um, Theodore Bekel removed, you know, pulled back his money he'd been contributing, saying that the black movement is anti-Semitic. I didn't think that was the case, but I was totally confused. And I came back to California, and it's the Marxists who explained to me what was happening, the need for um, uh, people of color to lead their own movement, the need for white people to organize their own, how it all fit with a social analysis, with the national liberation struggle. So it started to make sense, and then I got very interested in Marxism. If they could make sense of it for me, there must be something here. As I started studying Marxism, I started running across the Frankfurt School, Herbert Marcuse, that kind of thing. And it gave me a tool for analyzing, a tool that's very similar to psychoanalysis. Uh, Marxism and psychoanalysis share a lot in terms of methodology. For instance, both uh, fields um, assume that the appearance that we experience is not the truth, that there's something deeper underlying it. For Freud, it was in the unconscious. For Marx, it was the ideological distortion to um, support capitalism. Um, both um, fields uh, require struggle, active struggle, in order to know. That is, your knowledge comes from the struggle. In psychoanalysis, it's doing your clinical practice. In Marxism, it's struggling to change the world. And both assume that the experimenter is part of the experiment. That is, for the Marxist, we each have our own class interests, and we have to be very careful in all of our ventures, our social struggles and our scientific uh, statements. We have to make sure that we control for our own bias that comes from our class, racial, ethnic position. And in psychoanalysis, of course, there's the transference and countertransference, and it's the same kind of study of self as the experimenter who's part of the experiment, and we have to control our own biases. Could you define transference and countertransference very briefly for us? Well, in the broadest sense, transference is the feelings a patient has about their therapist. Uh, analysis uh, sands about their psychoanalysts in a more narrow sense it's the distortion in that relationship that's caused by previous relationships for instance relationships with parents countertransference is the equivalent feeling in the other direction what the analyst or therapist feels towards the client which is a distortion based on their previous experience you mentioned herbert marcuse an enormously influential thinker and Someone who, in the 1960s, many people looked to for sources of kind of revolutionary ideas, ideas about liberation, social liberation. And one thing Marcuse did, and that you became very interested in, was to look at Marx and Freud and to maybe not synthesize them, but to reconcile them in certain ways. Was his project and was your interest in Marx and Freud was it based on what you just mentioned about there being certain similarities between the two lines of thought, or was there more to it? Well, it was that, and there was more to it. Um, that is, there was something about the methodologies that was similar, and therefore there was something compatible about a combined approach of Marxism and psychoanalysis. But the other thing is the problems we were dealing with. Now, I wasn't alive then, but the Frankfurt School began in the 1920s, and the problem they were having was that they saw the problems of Stalinism very early. And so what they wanted to do, these were very sophisticated Marxists, Horkheimer, Adorno, uh, Marcuse was a little younger, and what they wanted to do was save Marxism from the Soviets. That is to develop a very um, sophisticated version of Marxism that doesn't rely on the Soviet Union being right, because on a lot of questions they thought they weren't right. So they used psychoanalysis in that project. And then they had a ba another battle to confront, and that was about capitalism and how it had morphed itself in the 20th 
20th century so that it wasn't subject to revolution. How did that happen? And they felt that the battle was really in psychology, that it was, it was a battle for the citizen's mind. And where uh, Henry Ford and the consumerist um, development wanted to manipulate people into buying things and being happy from buying rather than organizing a union and protesting, the sophisticated Marxists wanted to use the same way of thinking, the same psychoanalytic principles, and understand why it was that people were um, uh, loyal to capitalism or in the um, Second World War, uh, Nevitt Sanford, who is the founder of the school I teach at, the Wright Institute, uh, wrote the authoritarian personality with Theodore Adorno, one of the uh, members of the Frankfurt School. And what they wanted to know was why are people in Germany amenable to Nazism? Why do they become Nazis? And they looked at the family structure and authoritarianism in the family. So there was the use of psychoanalytic method to understand large social phenomena. It's interesting because as you talk about this sort of social and political analysis, a lot of people would say, well, what I think of when I think of psychoanalysis is somebody in a couch and somebody sitting there and going through Oedipal complex, uh, conflicts and all kinds of inner, internal processes, processes involving or being traced back to one's childhood, for example, and one's relationship with one's family. And so then... Can you give us a concrete example of how these radical therapists and maybe radical therapists such as yourselves closer to the present might integrate social concerns, a sort of political vision of the world into what they're doing in this room with their client? Um, well, that's a very good question. Um, really, there is no therapy that occurs in isolation from what's going on socially. What tends to happen in, and and What's happened to psychoanalysis as it's moved to the United States, it's become more conservative. And the social aspect of the analysis has dropped out. Russell Jacoby wrote a book about that, about Otto Fenichel, who was a socialist in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, came to the United States and became a narrow clinician. He never n wrote another word about society, and he wrote mm -hmm. only about psychopathology and how to do analysis. Um, there's always a context in which we choose what to talk about. Therapy is basically a conservative practice. That is, its aim is to help people function better in the world as it is. And that makes it conservative. That is, what it makes people is a better worker. So that currently lawyers or, or corporate um, executives come to see therapists and say, I'm not able to be productive enough at work, or I'm not able to put on a happy face for my superiors and my colleagues. And so something's wrong with me. Fix it. And the reason to fix it is to work better, not to look at what are your goals, why are you working 12 hours a day in corporate law or in the corporations. And so there's always a choice. When, when I was uh, a young adult, um, we were accused, radicals were accused, and particularly me because I was a young radical in the psychiatric field, so I was in training. I was accused of acting out my Oedipal Rebellion. That is, I was a social activist because I had not resolved my conflicts with my father and I had authority issues. Bruno Bettelheim said it that all student uh, uh, revolutionaries are acting out infantile tantrums. And Louis Foyer, a um, social uh, scientist on the UC Berkeley campus, said that Mario Savio, one of the leaders of the free speech movement, was acting out his Oedipal complex. Well, that was an interesting question. 
later, um, many years later, I look back on that and I say, well, I did have some issues with authority. I also had a well-grounded critique of capitalism and I had a sense of what was wrong. I didn't like racism. I didn't like the war in Vietnam. I didn't like sexism and I wanted to struggle to change it. I felt it was my social responsibility to do that. But then becomes the issue... Um, well, who is distorting reality then? The therapist who says I'm acting out my Oedipal complex and is himself not active in correcting what even he has to admit is wrong with society? Or am I the one suffering psychopathology because I want to act to correct what I see as wrong in psychology? So there's always that bias in the therapeutic stance. That is, what do you choose to analyze? Do you choose to analyze activism, which my therapists and analysts chose to act uh, to interpret in me as pathology? Right. Or do you choose to interpret the inactivism of the majority of people? Mm. So in a conservative approach to therapy, what you do is the inactive person is the norm, the active person is abnormal, and therefore we analyze what's wrong with the person who chooses to be active. Uh, My own view is that activists need to look at their own psychological life and what authority conflicts they might have, but that doesn't... um, dismiss the fact that they have a legitimate social analysis that says something's wrong and needs to be corrected. Terry Coopers, K-U-P-E-R-S, joins us in studio on Against the Grain. He is a faculty member at the Wright Institute in Berkeley, longtime prisoner rights activist, an expert in the areas of mental health in prisons, prison conditions as human rights concerns, and prison rape. He's also a board-certified psychiatrist with a private practice in the Bay Area. Now, I imagine that some folks might accuse therapists who bring their own political visions into the counseling room and, in addition, talk about certain social or political concerns, maybe even about the status quo under which their clients are laboring under their clients are trying to, you know, adapt to and work under um, and say, well, isn't there a danger that this kind of therapist might, however subtly, politically indoctrinate the client? What's your take on that? Well, I think that's true. And I think we have to avoid political indoctrination. Therapy is basically a concentrated effort to listen very closely to what an individual's concerns are. And that individual is the client or the patient. So when the therapist's concerns become the dominant part of the therapy, something wrong is going on. However, I don't agree with the idea that the radical therapist is bringing social concerns into the therapy. Actually, what I think is that all therapy has a social aspect to it, and there's a choice to ignore it or to deal with it. The choice to ignore it, that is the choice to say, look, your unhappiness at work has to do with your psychopathological depression or your issues about your unresolved conflicts with parents, um, that's a choice. Another way you could say it is, well, what's going on at the workplace is really unfair. It really has to do with capitalism and the way profits are being distributed. It really has to do with the way um, plants are being downsized, the way uh, laborers are being ripped off. And we need to understand your sense of non-accomplishment in that social context. Now, it's not that the therapist who does that is indoctrinating the client, he might be. The question is whose issues is he listening to? But my point would be that the therapist who doesn't look at that level of analysis is indoctrinating the client. Indoctrinating the client without saying so to look only within for the source of his unhappiness. 
This brings to mind for me this question of emotional or mental norms, this idea of who is a healthy person, who is psychologically normal, who is insane, for example, on the other extreme. And, and what you seem to be suggesting is that these norms uh, must be socially constructed. And, of course, well, you've written about this. Uh, to talk more about that, to the extent to which society really imposes these norms, to which many therapists, no doubt, blindly follow. Yes, and um, I don't know any other way for norms to be constructed than socially. Of course, the norms is what we socially accept as normal. I think it's actually a very bad way to guide psychotherapy or any kind of social service intervention. That is to try to get people to be normal. There's something very abnormal to me about that. Um, let me um, uh, give an example. I I think that if therapy is conservative, as I just explained, psychopathology, the theory of the different kinds of mental illnesses, is even more conservative or reactionary. Mm. For instance, we have a history of pathologizing homosexuality. In the early 70s, there was a diagnosis, homosexuality, in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is the American Psychiatric Association's list of diagnoses. It was removed because of gay liberation struggles, that is, people protested. Um, there was a uh, diagnosis proposed of the uh, sort of woman as victim, the woman who tends to get victimized. And, um, and uh, for instance, uh, the um, survivor of domestic violence. Now, why is it that we weren't pathologizing the perpetrator of, of uh, domestic violence? Why don't we pathologize homophobia? Why don't we have a category of homophobia? We don't in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. That's a social bias, so there's, there's no way not to have a social bias. I have an entirely different version of psychopathology, and it's this. I, I'm not opposed to a psychopathology, I just think the one we have is extremely reactionary. I would propose this, and that is that the entire um, social justice project, the revolutionary, the radical struggle, is about envisioning a better society and then struggling to enact that better society here where we live. Well, what if we took as our psychopathology, our theory of psychopathology, what are the qualities in people that would work in that better society? Hmm. So rather, what's wrong with the person who is homosexual or who is uh, the woman who uh, in, in the... Um, 20s and 30s, women who were ambitious and went out and sought employment among the men were considered to be acting out their castration complex. So you pathologize what is sort of not the norm of the time, and that, and that changes over time. What if what we pathologized are the things that wouldn't work in the society we envision? So we envision gender equity. We envision an end to racism. We envision an end to the massive maldistribution of wealth. And what if we and and homophobia would be pathology? What if we pathologize those things? What if we say that excessive ambition, selfishness, um, homophobia, uh, misogyny? are the forms of mental illness and then I aim our therapy at correcting those forms so that as we do therapy we're working towards the society we envision that would be my proposal for a psychopathology I believe that was the project of radical therapy and that was the project of uh, of the 60s not even the therapists but of the 60s which is to envision the society that we would prefer and then struggle as hard as we can to make that happen and in answer to your what-if questions, I would probably say, well, in that case, psychology and psychiatry would become 
radical challenges to the status quo, the social and political status quos. And then in this political climate that we're in now, it's hard to imagine any establishment, let alone, say, the therapy establishment, allowing that to happen. Well, that's absolutely correct. And the therapy establishment is a vested interest that's very deeply uh, committed to, to their way of making a living and making profits. But let me give you an example of an instance where that occurred. Of course, this Wilhelm Reich's work and his work on sexuality was very profound and relevant today. Um, there's Herbert Marcuse's work. Otto Fenichel was a psychoanalyst who was a socialist in the 20s and 30s. I don't know how, he close, how close he was to the Communist Party. But he wrote an article in the 1920s, The um, uh, Need to Amass Wealth. And it's, it's an article in the Psychoanalytic Journal. Hmm. And what he said is he is arguing with Freud. Freud is saying if you lack ambition, sufficient ambition to get ahead in your chosen career or, or, or work uh, area, then you're hung up on the Oedipal complex. You're afraid of castration by your father or you're, you know, have a success uh, phobia or something like that. And Otto Fenichel said, what if that's not true? What if it's the opposite? What if what we're doing is honing too much ambition and we're making people neurotic by making them think, for instance, in the East Bay, they have to have a home in the hills, or they have to have a job which brings them a certain amount of income, or they have to drive a Lexus. What if we're creating false standards to which, uh, aims uh, that we need to achieve, and then making a lot of people miserable who aren't achieving it? Then he went on to say, and this was his Marxist analysis, now why are we doing that? And he pointed to, the, to Marx's view of capital, and the way in which under capitalism there needs to be an accelerating rate of profit. That is, making the same amount of profit you made last year will not keep you solvent in today's capitalism. In fact, you'll get bought out by a bigger corporation. So what you have to do is constantly accelerate the rate of profit, which drives you to reduce wages, to break unions, to go overseas, to have your labor done. And he says, well, now, what if that's a bad system? And that's, we don't want that system. Why are we modeling our psychopathology and our psychotherapy on that system so that the ambition where we feel a need to continually accumulate and accomplish more is based on the capitalist model of the need for an accelerating rate of profit? What if we just stopped that? and said, what's wrong with living in the house you've been living in for 10 years? What's wrong with driving a less prestigious car? Terry Cooper joins us in studio on Against the Grain. My name is C.S. Song. He teaches at the Wright Institute in Berkeley. We have links on againstthegrain.org to at least, I think, a couple of his books, and they include Ending Therapy, The Meaning of Termination, Prison Madness, The Mental Health Crisis Behind Bars and What We Must Do About It, and Revisioning Men's Lives, Gender, Intimacy, and Power. And when I think about sort of the struggle, the struggle to create a more socially just world, and you were talking about your early activism being psychopathologized by people who were dealing with you, who were supervising you, for example, in a residency, I don't think you mentioned this, that you were doing in psychiatry in the Watts District in Los Angeles. There are there's a kind of ambition that activists have, right? They are working toward a better world. They want their projects, their proposals to work out, to be realized in their communities, in their cities, in the wider world. And you have written about the sort of differing contexts in which, say, activists in the 60s and, say, activists today operate. There is a very different political climate. The possibilities, as I mentioned at the beginning of the hour, seem to be a lot fewer in the current uh, 
climate. So I'm wondering what you have found out in terms of ambitions, the uh, the necessity or the requirement that these ambitions be realized in order to feel satisfied, and what we can say, it's a big question, about maybe how this operates among or between the two generations. Well, um, we can use psychology two ways. As, as I've been uh, speaking, I've been uh, correcting what I think is wrong with psychology. I think cons- psychology today, establishment psychology, is basically conservative. However, it can be corrected. Uh, we can look, for instance, towards a vision of the future rather than towards the past in defining what's psychopathological. We can then use that corrected psychology to look at two things. One is the psychology of our times, that is, what the mass culture um, uh, puts forward as the psychological life. What What is consumerism about? Why, why are people interested in driving that Lexus? We can also turn that inward to the activist. When we turn it into the activist, something is very obvious, and I'm very impressed by this, and I'm glad that I was born when I was born. Um, and that is, in the 60s, something happened. I believe it happened in the 30s as well. And this is what happened. A generation of people came of age at a time when they believed for whatever reasons and the reasons are complicated that the world could be better and that they could envision how the world would be better that was the revolutionary project or even the hippie project the youth project the world could be better they could envision how the world would be better and if they could work hard enough at envisioning it and argue their differences and study Marx and do what they could to figure out how to do things better, whether it was men and women getting along in some kind of equitable basis, ending racism, giving workers a break, um, ending pollution and doing something about the environment, stopping war. All of these things could be envisioned. When they were envisioned, we could put ourselves firmly in the struggle to make the better world happen, and that would then lead us to a better life. That was a worldview. It was also a psychology. So you have a generation of people growing up feeling that. Richard Flax, the sociologist at Santa Barbara, has said that your consciousness for a lifetime is the consciousness that you came into adulthood with. So people listen to the rock music of their late teens and early 20s still. Well, the 60s radicals have this view that they can change the world in their image and their image is going to be worked out collectively with all the other radicals and then the world is going to be better. A lot of them have retired from the active struggles by this time. However, they still have that mindset in their background. People who came of age in the 70s and 80s and the 90s in particular don't have that back, uh, that that perception. Therefore, they're more focused on present concerns, for instance, how much they can, uh, how much income they can make, uh, what their position is, what their power is, uh, what pleasures they can buy. And that's a very different mindset. Now, for the radical who came of age in the 60s, by the way, I think there's a reemergence of the 60s consciousness today. Mm. I see it all around. It's very hopeful, and that is there are young people in motion. I see I'm active in the prison movement. We have a lot of young activists in the prison movement. They're not literally, but at least symbolically, in a lot of cases literally, they're the children of the 60s. They're, they're the children of people who had that mindset in the 60s and conveyed it to their children. Um, 
Now, what happens, I believe, when radicals get into trouble or ex-radicals get in trouble and get depressed, for instance, about not achieving enough in their life, they're buying into the complacent um, conservative psychology of the times. That is, you buy things in order to be happy, and the more you buy, the happier you are. If you can't afford to buy enough, then you're a lesser person. So because they don't have the radical movements to support their earlier mindset, they fall into that trap. And, in fact, what they need is to be reminded of that project, that the world could be a better place. That, for instance, staying home, a man staying home and helping to raise the children so his wife could be out doing a career like him. And, therefore, he isn't going to advance as far or as fast. That was something that was supported by the movements of the 60s. It's less supported today, and that's unfortunate. But we have to be reminded that that was possible and that it's still worth struggling for. We're going to get to a case study that illustrates some of these points. Terry Coopers joins us. Go to download podcasts of our program. Terry Coopers is a faculty member at the Wright Institute in Berkeley. He is a psychiatrist with a private practice in the Bay Area. You may have heard him over the airwaves of KPFA talking about prison rights, prisoner rights. Uh, But I wanted to get him on today because I found out he also has a lot of interesting things to say about psychology and psychiatry more generally and their relationship, the relationship of these disciplines to social concerns and radical activism. So perhaps to help people understand what we're talking about here, Terry, tell me about the guy who came to see you. Uh, We'll, of course, keep his name uh, confidential who had been a community act organizer for 15 years and was severely depressed following an argument he had with his wife, after which he felt like he'd been wasting his life. Pretty pretty serious um, traumatic experience for him, no doubt. What, what happened with that guy? Well, I, I presented that case in an article in, in, in Socialist Review in the early 90s, and he, exact, he actually illustrates exactly what we were just talking about. What happened was that his child, he was uh, earning a decent income, but not uh, he wasn't affluent, being a community organizer for a nonprofit organization and doing very good things. Um, one of his children was beat up at school and was in public school. And so he and his wife got in an argument about why they couldn't send the child to private school. And the reason was they couldn't afford it. This has been a huge issue for progressives of all kinds. And that is, we believe in the public schools. We believe that if we're going to have equitable education, democracy depends on everybody having an education. We should not be sending our children to private schools. But on the other hand, we don't want to make our children suffer, for instance, getting beat up at school or getting a lesser education uh, because of our ideas. So parents are struggling with that all the time. He and his wife got into a particularly bad argument about that. He became very depressed, and he felt that he'd failed. He'd failed on several fronts. First of all, the revolution he was struggling for wasn't happening, so he was a failure there. Second of all, his uh, peers were making more money than him, and their kids were going to private school, and his wife was uh, stuck without being able to go to school and develop her career. So he felt he'd failed his family. And we talked about that, and exactly the two mindsets I discussed came up. That is, he'd forgotten why he was a radical activist and a community organizer, and we talked some about that. What, what, what were his choices about? 
it's really unfair if you just think about it rationally. It's unfair to judge oneself a failure in terms of making $200,000 a year if all one's life one has been taking jobs at thirty-five dollars and $45,000 a year in order to aid social struggles. So the question that he had to be reminded of because he didn't have the kind of social support that was around in the 60s and, and, uh, and, and immediately thereafter of why he was doing that. What ideals was he striving for? Once he was able to remember that, and it's hard to remember that in the given conservative uh, era, um, then he was able to resolve his depression and then look for practical solutions about his child and school and his wife. And actually, he did go on to solve those problems. But the first thing he had to do was uh, deal with his diminished self-esteem, which was behind the depression. And we did that by examining both the psychological context and the social context and what had happened to those ideals. Do you find that as the decades go by and you no doubt treat people who grew up in the 60s era and were involved in 60s activism and you're growing and you're treating people who are operating under a very different climate, although I do agree with you there is hope, it seems, in the youth movements and in increasing political activism today. <clears throat> Do you find that um, th th that there's a sort of... Uh, well, what's the difference in the sense of if there is somebody, say, born in the 1970s who really never had the chance, the opportunity to see a radical vision of theirs being enacted, and let's say they present to you as depressed, as opposed to a 60s activist who had all this exhilaration in the 60s and 70s, but now hasn't seen so much for so many decades. I mean, are there certain similarities between... The, I mean, and we're generalizing, of course, but between those two kinds of clients? A absolutely, and it has to do with selective amnesia. I, I think we have a social amnesia. That is, I, I am shocked to find out. Uh, I, I was the doctor for the Black Panthers back in the 60s and 70s, and so I know a lot of Black Panther history. I'm very surprised to find young African-American people who don't know anything about the Panthers, and when I mention that, they're very hungry. Well, what happened? What What was that all about? What what happened historically and it's shocking to me that that history has been forgotten so i think part of the problem with the 70s and 80s generation if people born in those ages is that we have a social amnesia it's a carefully programmed social amnesia what they've done in the universities after the outbreaks of uh, rebellion in the 60s is they said well we can't have rebellions on the universities so what we need to do is we need to have more specialized fields of study we need to make people study technical courses from a very early age so that they're not getting the cross disciplinary history and philosophy that would lead them to question the status quo and therefore revolt. So what we have is a much more early specialized college population who are not as knowledgeable about historical events like the social movements of the 60s. Now as for the 60s generation there's another problem and I, I would put it this way. We need to ask ourselves why we're activists. What are we doing? Why are we in the struggle? Now if we're in the struggle to win to win soon, that is, in our lifetime, we are going to be very depressed because we're not winning. Things are bad right now. The, the uh, environment is being destroyed. Uh, this country is involved in uh, genocide, basically, in torture, in, in invading countries that we don't agree with. Um, the domestic programs that we all fought for in the 60s are being dismantled. Uh, it's a disastrous time. So if we're in this in order to win, then our prospects are very limited. 
I don't think we should be in this in order to win. I think we should be in this eventually to win. That is, the people will eventually prevail and we'll have a better society. But I think the reason that we're in struggles to end oppression and to end inequity is because that's the place we want to live our life. In other words, we want to be with the people who fight against oppression, racism, homophobia, etc. And there's no other way to live a life. So the struggle is a way of life. Now, we want to win, and um, we want to get involved in politics, and we want to take back the environment, and we want to defeat this uh, regime we've got now. Uh, and we should fight hard to do that. But we should remember why we're in the struggle. And for me, uh, we're in the struggle because there's no place else to be, and the people in the struggle are the people I want to be allied with. There is an obstacle to some of these activists, some of these people struggling for certain things, an obstacle to them seeking therapy, to going to a psychologist, to going to a psychiatrist. And the argument often made, maybe it's just internally, is that, well, if I do my individual psychological exploration, if I go into my own edible or whatever other issues, that's diverting energy and attention away from my activism. And by gosh, there's so much that needs to be done on the activist level. I don't have the time or the energy. I can't afford the time or energy to sit with a therapist once or twice a week. Your response to that? Uh, well, it's a, it's a very reasonable concern, and I think we should keep it on the front burner. And my advice to activists who need therapy is go get the therapy you need, but keep that analysis on the front burner and don't let the therapist convince you to remove it. I'll give you an example that really isn't about therapy. It's about medications, and I'll use Prozac as an example, the sort of new generation antidepressant. I've had a lot of patients come to see me, for instance, a lawyer in a big law firm who says, I want Prozac. And I say, well, why do you want Prozac? Are you depressed? And the person will say, not particularly. But Joe at the next desk or one of my partners uh, has been cheerful lately at work. And what's starting to happen is people are starting to prefer him in the office and the bosses, the higher-up partners are starting to give him preferable assignments because he's so cheerful. I'd like to be cheerful like him. And that's a very dangerous development. In other words, the, the standard is becoming you have to take Prozac and smiles like Alfred E. Newman, me, what, me, uh, happy, uh, mm -hmm. and you have to smile at work. Therefore, you have to take Prozac in order to smile. What happens then is in situations where the work has unfortunate, um, inequitable uh, uh, dynamics, for instance, workers who are being ripped off, who are made to take pay cuts or, or their union is being broken, and they get depressed about it, they're going to see therapists who give them Prozac and say, look, you can get over this, just uh, you know, go back to work and be happy. That's a very regressive development, and we have to watch out for it. Now, at the same time, radicals have personal problems, and therapists are trained to hone into those personal problems and help. So, first of all, radical therapists have to be good therapists. Competency is, is, is the first prerequisite. You can't be an, an adequate therapist and espouse political principles and help anybody. You have to be a good therapist and know how to help people with particular problems. But the people going to see therapists for those problems have to keep their social analysis in mind mm. and have to not let themselves be pathologized. So, for instance, there's nothing wrong in therapy. I think it's very healthy for the client to say, well, the way you're interpreting my inner struggles leads me to believe that you think it's pathological to struggle socially. And I don't agree with that. So I'm wondering how you can do therapy with me. Mm -hmm. Now, a good therapist will turn around and say, let me look at that. I think, you're, I think you've got something there, and we can talk about that. 
Now, that comes up in gender issues. For instance, a woman will say to a therapist, you know, you're interpreting as if um, I shouldn't be seeking the powerful position that I'm seeking, and this is to a male therapist. Is it that you have a view that women shouldn't be in powerful positions? That's perfectly appropriate for a client to say that, and it's perfectly appropriate for that male therapist to say, let me think about that. That's a good point, and of course, I would want to get that tr- counter-transference out of the way so I can help you. And that's a legitimate interaction in therapy. Another, I don't know, consequence of intense activism might be to allow the activists to avoid dealing with some of their own really legitimate personal issues, psychological issues, whether it be uh, male chauvinism or racial prejudice or homophobia, or I could go on and on. Talk about that. Well, you know, those interpretations I got when I was uh, a young adult about acting out my Oedipal Rebellion, as I said earlier, uh, they were partly true. I was acting out my Edward Rebellion. Now, at the same time, I had, I felt, and I still feel, a well-founded social analysis that said, this is a time when civil rights are in question and there's sexism and there's war. This is a time to get in the streets and storm the barricades. So I feel that that was a very rational decision. It was based on well-grounded social principles, and it was absolutely legitimate. Now, while I was doing that, I also had unresolved issues about my father. So it is appropriate to talk about that, but the one shouldn't be posed against the other. So I think the answer to that question is, yes, radicals can act out personal conflicts. Everybody is acting out personal conflicts in every project they're doing. It's very important to analyze that and be aware of it so we become more conscious. But I think it's also not right to pathologize the social struggles, especially when there's this huge bias that I mentioned, and this pervades all of psychology and psychotherapy, that to be active is something that's worthy of interpreting. If you're active, there must be a neurotic reason for it. But nobody says, I say, but most of my colleagues don't say, well, to be inactive is worthy of work. Uh, why are we in this time when there's such urgency to stop the decimation of the environment? Why are we not active? Terry Cooper is K-U-P-E-R-S, professor at the Wright Institute in Berkeley. He is a psychiatrist with a private practice in the Bay Area. My name is C.S. Sung. The show is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio and online at kpfa.org. You mentioned Prozac, and you've written about the focus of certain therapies on symptom reduction and what that means for effective treatment of people with mental health issues. How much of a focus is simply reducing or trying to eliminate or masking, perhaps, symptoms of mental disorders or mental illness? Well, the... Symptoms that we choose to mask or or resolve is symptomatic of our time. So with Prozac, for instance, what I've written about is the issue of grief, of appropriate mourning, of of grief that we do. Now, what has you know slowly crept into the uh, psycho uh, psychological and psychiatric world is if you lost your mother and you are grieving beyond a certain time, say after a few weeks, then there's something pathological about your grieving and we need to give you an antidepressant. 
Uh, it's my view that grieving is a natural process, that it's part of human life, that we actually need to foster grieving, that ineffective grieving is one of the biggest problems psychologically of our time. By the way, revenge is another one, and I'd like to talk about that, but sure. um, that we ought to be fostering grieving, and we shouldn't be medicating people because they're experiencing grief. Rather, we should help them to grieve effectively. But what's happening is that we're giving Prozac to more and more people because they're crying after they lose somebody. There's nothing wrong with crying after you lose somebody. So I think there is a real danger that we will turn inward, just what you said earlier, we will turn inward, we will forget what's going on in, so, uh, in society, and what we need is to have a social discussion about this in the midst of struggling to change the things we feel we need to change, which is the war, the uh, uh, ruining the environment, the uh, domestic programs being dismantled. While we're involved in that, Vivian Gornick wrote a book um, where she interviewed a bunch of old leftists from the 30s, and uh, a lot of them had left the Communist Party, and a lot of them were in psychoanalysis. And I remember one case of, of a guy she interviewed who, this was in the, uh, he had left in the 50s, and he had gone through psychoanalysis, and they were talking about intimacy and how psychology prioritizes intimacy, but the left never really had a lot of intimacy. And he begged to disagree with her, and he said, you know, I used to stand at the barricades with my comrades in the 30s, and then I left the party and I went into analysis, and now I have my friends who I talk deeply with about my personal feelings and my conflicts and my relationship with my wife. He said, I'm nowhere near as intimate as those people I'm having all that psychological talk mm. with as I was with those comrades when we stood at the barricade and the, and the police charged us on horses. What do you want to say about revenge? Well... I do a lot of work in the prisons right now, so I get a view of what's going on in society that I think most people don't. I think, feel very privileged to have that. I go into the prisons. I'm an expert witness for class action lawsuits about basically human rights abuses in the prisons. And I, I, I have come to believe that all of this um, harsh sentencing, the, uh, the death penalty, the three strikes and all that, it's all about revenge. And that is, these people did something, we're going to punish them harshly, and the punishment becomes more and more harsh. Now, what I notice is that as that occurs, uh, we also are in a war with Iraq, and we've got uh, Defense Minister uh, Rumsfeld standing up there and saying, well, this guy did this, and we're going to kill him, and this guy did that, and we're going to kill him. What we're doing is teaching revenge, and the criminal justice system um, projects this more strongly than anywhere else. But when you're driving along and someone cuts in in front of someone, the next car is going to practically ram them. I think that's related to what Rumsfeld is saying on television. I think it's related to what we're doing in the prisons. That what we're doing, and the death penalty is sort of the epitome of this, what we're doing is we're fostering revenge, and it isn't just about someone that's convicted of multiple murders. It's about our daily life as we drive in traffic or as we think about the plight of disadvantaged people. So now Bush is proposing that we put an uh, unprecedented amount of money breaking the federal government bank into a war while we dismantle domestic programs. Well, that has to do with the idea that the people who receive benefits from domestic programs aren't worth receiving those benefits. And because they've failed, basically, we're going to get revenge against them. We're not going to give them welfare, disability, housing, etc. And so what, what's happening is the revenge motive, which is spreading and destroying our relationships with each other just in middle-class America, is also becoming the rationalization for being an unkind, cruel society, which doesn't take care of its own disadvantaged. Finally, in our last three minutes, what is your prognosis? What's your sense of 
what might be happening with activists and their psychological well-beings in the near future? And does it require that there are dramatic victories by radical activists, by progressive activists, to avoid uh, a, a, you know, a continuing trend toward people coming to you, for example, people coming to other therapists and saying, I'm depressed because my ambitions haven't been realized, not even, you know, that no no part of my radical agenda has been realized. Uh, Yes, as as I said earlier, I I believe that being in the struggle needs to be rationalized based on this is where I want to be, these are the people I want to be with, and struggle is my way of life. It's not that our victories uh, add up to a a, a reward for this activity. However, I also think we have rewards. The anti-globalization struggle, a lot of the environmental movement, a lot of the struggles going on now around um, um, choice and and move on, for instance. Where did move on come from? It was nowhere, and then all of a sudden a whole lot of people got active because they wanted to stop this steamrolling right-wing direction the government was taking. So I actually think there are signs that we're coming out of the dark ages, and history tends to be cyclic. And I think for progressive, the trick is to not to give up hope. That that idea that we can envision a better society and struggle to make it happen, both as a social project and in our own daily lives, um, is a very viable uh, approach. And the people who remember that and act on that are actually relatively happy people. Terry Coopers, K-U-P-E-R-S, on againstthegrain.org. We have links to two of his books, Revisioning Men's Lives, Gender, Intimacy, and Power, as well as Prison Madness. We also have a link to a series of short talks that Terry gives about prisons, and he's been very active in that movement, has a lot of important things to say, and you'll continue to hear him, no doubt, on KPFA talking about the death penalty and prisoner rights and human rights within prisons. Thanks so much, Terry, for coming on with us. Thank you, C.S. It was a pleasure. This is C.S. suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning, and Sasha and I will look for you next time. We have links to resources relating to today's show with Terry Coopers on our website, againstthegrain.org, where you can also go to download podcasts 